0: Low-code tools can be used to build an increasing number of applications. Knowledge workers within a large corporation can use these low-code tools to augment their usage of simple tools like spreadsheets. Entrepreneurs can use low-code tools to start businesses without even knowing how to write any code. Modern low-code tools have benefited from steady improvements in cloud infrastructure, front-end frameworks like React.js, and browser technology such as the V8 JavaScript engine. These building blocks like V8 and React and AWS, they have been what has allowed us to get to low-code products such as Webflow and Bubble and Retool and Airtable. And these low-code tools truly are a new layer of abstraction, and they're supported by a broad selection of APIs like Stripe and Twilio and Zapier that give them quite rich functionality. So what can you actually do with these tools? Ben Tossel runs MakerPad, a site devoted to low-code and no-code applications. MakerPad describes how to use these tools to design sophisticated applications that do not require you to write code, but they do require a different kind of software engineering. To create applications intelligently with low-code tools, you need to know how these tools fit together and you need to be willing to persist through a process of iteration and debugging that is similar to traditional software engineering. Ben joins the show to talk about his experience building low-code applications, the use cases for low-code tools, and how he believes they will impact the future of software. Ben Tossel, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You've been studying and writing about the low-code ecosystem for a while, and I'd like to start with a discussion of the types of prototypical users that might interact with low-code tools, starting with the modern corporate knowledge worker. And I think of knowledge workers on a spectrum. On one end, you have programmers who are very technical and can build whatever they want to. On the other end, you have spreadsheet people who might have a domain expertise in certain business aspects, but they're not programmers. And for a long time, there was not much in between the level of technical expertise between programmer and spreadsheet person. But today, there's a variety of tools in between the programming languages and the spreadsheets. Can you tell me about how you see low-code tools impacting the job of the corporate knowledge worker?
1: Well, in terms of the spreadsheet spreadsheet person you're talking about, I guess... There's more of a, when something happens in the spreadsheet, something else happens outside of that spreadsheet. So for example, I just, we've got like an expert marketplace on MakerPad that people come in through our spreadsheet, which is we use Airtable. And then when certain things are met, or when I go in and click approve or something, then Zapier will fire, then emails will fire based off off of that. So I think things like that, a very sort of basic spreadsheet you can add quick automations too like that which I would never have known I was a spreadsheet person before I was a social media analyst a few years ago well several years ago now and all it was was copy paste this data to this data then send it off to a team in the Philippines who did the analysis and automation stuff for us but now it seems like it's at your fingertips whenever you need it yourself
0: what are some other workflows that a knowledge worker might be able to perform with low-code tools?
1: So we've seen things like application systems. So Lambda School, for example, they built a bunch of their backend stuff without code. And a big part of their application process was built on top of like Airtable, Typeform, Retool, and, and some others. And We see a lot of people who build lead generation flows that at some point use some spreadsheets. There's CRMs, there's applicant tracking systems, there's tons of these things where there's actual like big products built behind them. But you can just really make the simple version of, okay, well, I just need like a Kanban-style board, and you can make really simple versions of those yourself.
0: Do you have a sense of how these tools will impact Corporations in, in the limit? Like, if you zoom out five or 10 years, what are the things that we do today in corporations on a technical level that will seem crazy once these low code tools are proliferate?
1: Well, I think there's a big, I mean, there's huge amounts of repetitive work, monotonous work that people have to do every day, whether it's, okay, every time an email comes in with a resume attached. I then download that resume and then go and add that to Dropbox myself. Whereas you could have that automated without even touching anything. There's things like the CRM and applicant tracking, like I mentioned, that I think automations just work off of. Okay, if someone is moved from one one column to the next, then have this happen, like an automatic rejection email or app like uh, organising a new call. There's just tons of things in automation that I think people do a lot of busy work a lot of things spreadsheet based copying data from one to another pulling analysis and things we can actually do a lot of a lot of that through sort of google data studio for example so there's a ton and i haven't really been in the uh the workforce too for, for a long time actually so i just see a lot of these automations that people build on top of the no code low code space and what they sort of tell me
0: yeah the type of people that you seem to cover more or focus more on is the low-code entrepreneur. And this is someone who, in the past, might have built a business on WordPress, but today they have a much wider variety of tools. Maybe they still use WordPress, but they are also using certain low-code tools to build their platforms. Who are the types of people that are building fully fledged businesses without code? Can you tell me about some of the the prototypical types of users who are low code entrepreneurs?
1: yeah, so I think we f- have fallen into that like that type of user because that's the type of user who's been waiting for the no code space to be sort of coming out and for them. I think there's a lot of productized service type creators out there who are leveraging automations and workflows that help them do a productized service at a larger scale where they probably couldn't have done it before or would have to hire multiple VAs or or other people to, to deliver that service. But we see a ton of people looking at the sort of marketplace level too. So there's a few that we've covered that one was a, a marketplace for for backyard homes. So modular homes, you can buy different sizes, shapes, costs, sort of like um, just as you would imagine a marketplace would look like. It looked exactly the same, was built in Webflow. And yeah, tons of people doing, there's like a surfboard rental uh, marketplace that so we've seen, things like that.
0: In your personal background, you've worked in compliance and finance. You've done some social media management. You've been a community manager And your work is the kind of thing that is not easily categorized. My sense is that you've been, you know, you spent the first five or six years of your career trying a lot of different things, but fundamentally, you've been in front of a computer understanding the internet from a unique point of view. And it seems like there's a lot of people who fit that description they spend some time in front of the internet. They get a certain perspective. Maybe they're not programmers, but they see an entrepreneurial opportunity. This seems to be, in many cases, the type of person that becomes one of these low-code entrepreneurs.
1: Well, yeah, I think for me, I, was, I always thought I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I, I thought of it in terms of, oh, yeah, one day I'll have a huge company with hundreds of employees and, and millions in Venture capital uh, investment, but actually, through the process of um, going through all of those things, I was trying out lots of different ideas. But I knew that if I tried to learn to code and I was building some sort of marketplace app, it would take me months and months and months to get a very basic, crappy version of a marketplace. So, if I want to test this idea and if this is going to have any legs, I'd rather do it in a weekend. So is there a way I can sort of make the 80% version look and feel like an actual marketplace with some of the tools available to me? And then that meant that I could test a lot of things a lot quicker, but I didn't actually realize the thing I would end up doing was the actual teaching people around the no-code space.
0: And the people that you teach, the tutorials that you make, and the people who consume the low-code tutorials, are these people? purely people who have no experience programming or are there some programmers who have switched over to being low-code users?
1: Yeah, a quarter of our community is actually programmers. So when it's not the programmers who are sort of being a bit too sensitive around this space and and just arguing back, I think there's a big growing community of programmers who are actually seeing the value of testing using no-code too, because what programmers build a lot of the same infrastructure when they have to do a new, a new project, much like you would have to in any case. So if no code gets you there quicker and gets you to a validation point of paying customers, then why not do it in an hour rather than 20 hours or whatever it is? So I think it's just a case of being productive and, and taking the, the quickest path to that validation. And the programmers who see that in the community are, are some of our big, biggest advocates.
0: Do you have any sense of the rate of user growth of the low-code ecosystem?
1: Not by numbers specifically. I mean, MakerPad has become very popular. and I was sort of doing it before it was trendy. And I think a lot of people are now are just, just sort of catching on with the no code space. I think 2019 was really the year that it, it caught on. I remember Webflow was a tool for designers primarily, and then when they raised their Series A and had a little website refresh on their hero, it was it said sort of no code um, required or break the code barrier, I think was, was the term. So companies like that with big, big sort of presence in in the space have definitely helped popularize the movement and more and more people sort of get it. But I, I'm a bit disappointed that actually the, the term is no code is a bit unfortunate, but that's what's caught on. I and mean, now it's probably too late to be able to change it, but that's sort of what we're stuck with.
0: Why did it become popular last year? Was there some kind of inflection point that caused no-code tools to start <laughs> uh, or low-code tools, whatever your preferred description is? Was there some kind of inflection point that caused these things to start working?
1: I think it was just technically more possible than it was before. It was much more than build your website in Squarespace, and more towards you can build an application without needing to know how to code. So there's different various levels of that. So we, our site is built in Webflow, Airtable, Zapier, and MemberStack, and we have things where people can have their own profile, they can mark tutorials as completed, they can sort of say what tools they use, and that gets automatically added to their profile. But it's all built with sort of no, no code and that wasn't really possible if, if, or as accessible to someone like me a couple of years ago. So I think it's definitely helped. The possibilities have, have definitely grown and more and more tools are coming out to help people who aren't technical to build some of these things.
0: My experience creating software applications, when they get To a significant size, like at least as big as a MakerPad has gotten in terms of the amount of content you have on there, the workflow often becomes a little complicated, becomes convoluted, but you you have these, these tools and you have some best practices to keep it coherent, to keep an understanding of how things work together. I have a sense for how that works in the software engineering world not so much in the low code world. So when you're piecing together a site that feels like a fully fledged platform like if you go to makerpad, it feels like a fully fledged site that is engineered by a team of software engineers. When you look at your stack and you have Airtable here and and Webflow there and Zapier, you know, in some other place, does it feel like they're working together Harmoniously, or do you feel like you're jumbling together something in a way that these tools are, are, you know, not talking to each other as fluidly as you would like?
1: I think they they're getting a lot better at speaking to each other more fluidly. That's for sure. And I think it also it's not necessarily as simple as okay, just connect these four up in a certain way and it'll work in the way that you think. Make about especially his evolved from what it originally was and think originally it was just i would send you an automatic email based on you go through type form to to pay and then you'd get an email that would give you a password protected website in a a page in webflow and that'd give you the password so from there we've really sort of increased the capabilities of what we've done and yeah when we're setting up these systems like for instance the profiles recently there's definitely some quite a lot of testing rather quite a lot of testing to sort of get you to a point where it is fluid and like programming there's there's a the trial and error there's the okay now it's sort of live or it's semi-live to a few few users who we onboard as like the first testers they'll put it through its paces and then that'll throw errors or bugs in our zapier uh, sort of task history go through and and sort of make sure we fix each and every one of those so the process is actually I can't speak from experience but I think the process is actually quite similar in how you create like your version you test it with some users you fix bugs and then you just try and add more things to that so it's quite similar but there's yeah they do work harmoniously once you get to a certain stage and you sort of know what you're doing and you've and you've crossed a lot of these things off, but it, it's not quite as as simple as point and click and then they're connected.
0: It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I think your site is one of the more, it's definitely on the more complex side of a low-code application that's been written. So there's a term in software engineering called uh, technical debt. Basically, the idea is as your application gets built, over time, you accumulate these little little pieces of, of debt meaning maybe you you're you know you're trying to go fast cuz you're you're usually building some kind of business and you can't just you know make everything polished and perfect you have to grow the business you have to work on the things that are going to grow the business immediately are there places where makerpad has developed technical debt kind of things that you look at and you're like this is engineered poorly or this is causing this bug to re- to repeatedly come up does that word technical debt bring to mind any particular things that have developed over time in makerpad
1: yeah definitely i think it may even be more prevalent in what i'm building because we can build things so quickly and new features and new capabilities so quickly that sometimes makes previous ones obsolete or that they need a lot of updating so we've had cases on the site where there's like a members area that would have so we had our sort of experts listed, and that was previously a Webflow form go through Zapier to Airtable and then back to Webflow CMS item, and it was just anyone can get themselves listed. But now with us rolling out profiles, there's now a much more complex way of us doing that. So then now that profile section is the previous sorry profile section is is no longer needed. So we've got to go back and make sure the CMS collections are deleted and they're always linked to certain other pages. You've got to go and remove all those. So it does take a bit of time to go and reverse some of the mess you've made whilst trying to go fast. So I don't think it, it's not just for programmers. So we uh we feel that pain too
0: Software engineering has historically had this taxonomy of tools where some of them are on the back end, some of them are on the front end. Is there a similar way of thinking about these tools on, in the low code ecosystem? Are there front end and back end low code tools, or do you just think of them as some other paradigm?
1: No, I view them as front end back end style, but there are some crossovers. So I'd see Webflow at its current state as more of the front end. That's how you make the thing look how it looks. And then Airtable would be your sort of database. Zappy would be your connector. But then there's tools like Bubble, which is almost like an all-in-one solution. And it allows you to do a lot of logic-based things. If this, then that type of stuff. But it gets more complex. And I think it depends on what you what you know and how you like to build and and sort of the visual element of creating something. But there's, yeah, there's tons of different types of tools for each. So the connectors, there's also like Parabola and and a bunch of others. So there's many tools for each of these pieces. But I think when I think of building something or I'm building a new thing, I often look at, okay, will it need a front, a back, a connector, database stuff? And what do those things look like? I did a a workshop in... In the no code conf where I actually just went through sort of the stages of okay, this is how you think about the front, the back, and like this is sort of mobile app specific. If you use glide, that sort of mobile app. And then if you do the all in ones, you've got Adalo and Boundless and Bubble. And so there's lots of different options for each case.
0: Is Airtable the most frequently used backend setup? I think
1: so. It's it's gotta be Airtable or just using Google Sheets, I think, but the views and everything else that AirTable sort of brings with it has really helped. But there's tons more coming out in the sort of spreadsheet database section of there's retool, there's clay, there's there's a bunch of others which have much more complex formulas, buttons, and and things you can do there. So we're uh, we're really interested in uh, playing with those.
0: We just did a show about parabola. That tool is mostly used for it seems like data flows and these kind of back office jobs, like maybe you want to every day or every, you know, once an hour, go through your customer list and send all your customers who have made a purchase of $50 or more, an email. You can do these kind of batch processing data flow jobs with Parabola. Retool, I haven't done as much coverage of, but I understand it's useful for building reusable backend tools that could be usable for like a data analyst or an operations analyst what kinds of applications have you seen built with retool and parabola
1: so retool i think there was a good use case was lander school again we did an interview with them so that's how i can reference them quite easily. but they used retool for a lot of their like profiles and people so people students going through their boot camp and adding sort of check-ins and and progressing through that, I think they were using retool as their, their database for all the students. And we've just started playing with retool. They just sort of we've just partnered with them and, and we're interested in diving in. I know there's a bunch of different things there. And parabola, there's I saw there's a VC called Josh from Thrive Capital who did an analysis on his Chrome browsing history. So he made this huge flow to see how many times a day or how many times a week he would open Twitter and his email and and things like that so that was quite an interesting flow and quite a complex one we've seen there's a company i think it's called roll point who built their referral basically their referral product on parabola and they got to sort of five million in annual recurring revenue just using parabola as their actual product so customers will come in and they just assumed they were using software as you normally would. And I think on the back, it was just very complex Parabola flows with with other data. So we we did a story on that too, which was really interesting.
0: That anecdote there that somebody built a $5 million annual recurring revenue business that was heavily inspired by this unique tool, Parabola, that kind of story is the sort of thing that makes me convinced that this ecosystem is quite significant because you think about the trajectory of the software entrepreneur and how it has looked for maybe the last five or six years. Typically, you go to a coding boot camp or an online education system, treehouse or something, or maybe if you went to university, you know, you study computer science, then, you know, it's, it's a little bit easier, but, you know, you then you've had to invest four years into computer science. But in all these cases, you've had to learn to program. And then you've had to learn business on top of that. And then you've had to learn some domain expertise on top of that. This seems like really important because if you just have some domain expertise and you have a business idea, it's much easier to take that idea and generate a business out of it.
1: I can sort of argue with people until I'm blue in the face of, oh, yeah, Low-code, no-code is, is just for like uh, prototypes. When I hear these stories, like what Lambda School got a 30 million in venture funding with 3,000 concurrent students on a coding bootcamp by using no-code tools as their backend. Like, uh, that's one of my favorite examples. But yeah, we see companies who make 5 million a year who are built on no-code. And I just think that no-code enables people to test their ideas and i say test because it is that until you validated it and until you're building it but there's no reason why if makeapad was just a tutorial platform and we got up to tens of thousands of users students a year and we just focused on tutorials there's no reason why we couldn't be a multi-million dollar recurring business also built on top of webflow airtable and zapier so it was just an obvious choice for me when I couldn't code and I tried a few times and it just wasn't the right thing. Like I just didn't click with it and I didn't get it in terms of writing those functions out and, and doing it. And it, my brain just didn't work in that way, but where I, where I could see this Webflow thing or this Airtable thing and Zapier thing and linking them together, I sort of got it. And it just enabled me to build those things so much quicker And test them so much quicker and ask for a payment straight away and if no one paid and I got horrible feedback then I'm also less emotionally invested in it right I'm not 12 months 18 months down the rabbit hole of okay no I've got to make this thing work because I've made 10,000 lines of code doing this and it's like everything I've ever done so if you can build it in an hour if everyone hates it and it's really bad and No one wants to use it. You can also throw it away a lot quicker, which I quite like the analogy of as well.
0: When you're teaching people to use low-code tools, do you see people hit the same kinds of roadblocks that they hit in learning to code? Because I think your story about trying to learn to code a couple times and feeling frustrated and giving up, that is not an uncommon story. And even myself, I kind of left the world of writing software engineering because I kind of felt like I didn't have much leverage. Like, even though I could write an app end to end, it took so long. And, you know, I just wanted to have more leverage in my actions. And these kinds of tools definitely provide more leverage. But what kinds of roadblocks, since you're in the business of teaching people these things, what kinds of roadblocks do people hit? Do they still hit the technical roadblocks that cause them to quit?
1: I think it's the exact same process because it's like learning anything. If you're learning a language, not a technical language, as in like French or something, there's always something you you might think, oh, there's that word I just can't get right or I can never figure out what the right tense is of this sentence. So there's always... I think in learning in general, there's always a, a case of it's never always just going to be straightforward and work for you in the way that a textbook or a tutorial might might show you. There's always something. But I think with learning around the no code space, there's almost those quicker wins which help keep you on that path of, oh, well, I managed to build this whole app in an hour and a half but I just can't get this image URL thing to work. But I've got 90% of the way where I have gotten in one month of coding before, before I wanted to rip my hair out. It's like there different types of wins, I think. And I think that it's just a process of teaching and a process of learning that you're bound to hit roadblocks. It's just a way of being able to solve those. And I think we've got a very helpful community, much like in software engineering there's, There's very helpful communities on the web. So we're just looking at ways to nurture that and make sure that everyone can get to where they're they're actually trying to go rather than giving up and saying, oh, no, I'm going to go back to coding. This is not for me.
0: What kinds of scalability issues have you seen with low-code tools?
1: I've not seen much, to be honest, because I think as I'm in the process of teaching people, it's often a lot of younger ideas or projects that are being built for us we've got almost 1,000 paying users and thousands a week that come and come onto the site and, and we've been we've been fine we had no hiccups I keep on using lambda but they had 3,000 con- concurrent students I've not heard of a big issue here and I think that the tools are obviously becoming better and better each week each month but I'm, I'm yet to see that so I don't want to pretend that there's no limit, there's no ceiling because there definitely is, but I don't know where that ceiling is yet. But also it usually is the case that when people are asking me, well, why should I use no code over bins code? Aren't I going to hit, like won't I hit a limit if I have 10,000 paying customers on my Webflow site? And I think, well, if you haven't got 10 customers, I'm not sure that's the thing you should be worried about right now. Maybe like you can get to a thousand customers a month, a thousand customers a day, perhaps. And then if you're at that stage and you're hitting those limits, you validated it, you've probably got a team, you've got an actual business on your hands, then it might be time to graduate onto coding it yourself or hiring people to to code a platform for you. But we don't know how much better these no-code tools are going to get also. And I know that people talk about sort of being attached to a platform. So I look at that in a way that the things that I have created, they can all be exported or downloaded to like the basic level of a spreadsheet or it's like all our tutorials, the video is saved on our files, on YouTube, on somewhere, all the text goes with it. Webflow, we could export the whole site if we wanted to. It may look like a mess because I've made it, but we've still got all that there. And all our Airtable data, if Airtable went down, we could just move all that to a normal spreadsheet. Things like Zapier, obviously, we rely on. So then we'd have to look at different ways to build those integrations, but there's still many options out there of these connector tools that help you do those things.
0: Yeah. A sophisticated evolution of the historical back and forth between closed and open, because it's not the degree of closeness that you would have with Windows or, I guess, you know, some people would say Facebook. You can't really export your your Facebook system to some other system. The fact that all of these different tools are proprietary, but you're piecing together a multitude of the different tools and in each tool category there is some interchangeability so there's a little bit less platform risk when it comes to each individual tool to give some more light on just the variety of tools you know there's obviously these data con- these connectors like zapier there's the the front ends like webflow there's a bunch of different categories One category we haven't really explored is the the fully-fledged platform sites. Like You have Shopify for building an e-commerce site, but it really gives you a whole e-commerce back end. You also have, there's other big platforms, like I saw one on your site called ShareTribe, which is an out-of-the-box platform for building a marketplace, which is kind of amazing, just the idea that you could have a system for building a marketplace an entire platform of platform building. Are there any other large platforms on that people are using to build fully fledged no code sites, things like Shopify or ShareTribe? Are there any other large, thick sites in this category?
1: I don't know in terms of like having that functionality out of the box, but tools like Bubble and Boundless and Adalo have the ability to let you have sort of Okay, here's your site, here's your user profiles, here's your sign up pages. This connects in this way. Once you sign up, then you can go and access these things. Once you pay, you can do this. So I've seen people build like on demand Uber style clones with Bubble. I've seen just like fully functioning job boards with Boundless. And one of our tutorials is a Patreon clone built with Adalo. So you can have your own community page people could donate to your page and things like that. So these have more fluidity in in what you can build, but they've got some of these core like components that let you have that login functionality, which is one of those difficult things in in no code or has like payment functions.
0: Can you tell me about some low-code tool that is extremely niche, but also successful. I want to give the listeners a perspective on just how many tools there are in this ecosystem.
1: I don't know if you class Collide as niche, but it focuses just on mobile apps. And it's essentially a UI on top of Google Sheets. So all you need to know is how a Google Sheet works. They have some sort of referencing fields and things, but Essentially, if you create a Google Sheet with five columns, like name, location, image, URL, and price, you would have your very basic version of like an Airbnb-style app mm. using Glide. You just click the sheet, say, yeah, we we'll use this sheet, and then you can, you can load it. So we've, we've done a couple um, tutorials with them, and we've got an Airbnb clone where you have one Google Sheet, but you have a host app. And a sort of user app, you can sign up, you can book, you can review, you can search on a map. And then as a host, you can manage your locations, you can add new ones, accept bookings, and things like that, which is, I think, pretty crazy, just based off a Google Sheet. You can build like an Instagram clone with it. We built a Cameo clone where you sort of pretend to interact with a celebrity of some sort. So that's quite niche in that it's just a mobile app build it on top of Google Sheets, but the things you can build with it are actually quite extensive.
0: So your process of learning how to use all these tools, it was partially through creating your tutorials to show other people how to build businesses or how to build applications. Tell me about your workflow for creating these tutorials about low-code applications. So
1: initially, it was an accident, I'd say. I think I was trying to validate any idea that I had. It just so happened that I was using no code to build them. And then people would always ask, how did I do that? Or how did I put this thing together? Because it feels like a proper app. So I was always that person who couldn't code, the annoying person trying to find a developer to build something for me. And I was just like the ideas person. So I had a lot of ideas initially. And I think that actually a lot of ideas... Probably when you cut them down, they probably fall into a bunch of categories, right? They're either a membership-style site, they're either a job board-style site, they're a marketplace, and they, like the functionality may differ slightly, but they're all quite similar. Like I think they do fall into buckets, especially the the things that you probably would end up building with with no code at this current current time. So there was always just a list of of things we could build. We look at someone launched something new on product hunt or you'd see something coming out of yc that you'd think oh well i could probably build something similar to that in a lot less time and it was just like a challenge to myself to see what different things could i build i'd hear a new tool and think or try that or i'd see zapier has an integration with google docs so i built i built like a i didn't realize that google docs actually allows you to have dynamic data in it so I built a form on Airtable that you could automatically generate invoices just using a Google Doc and a form on Airtable, which is something that came out of people were asking us if we could get VAT receipts for European companies. So it was just people were always sharing ideas with me or asking me how to do something. And there's a never-ending list on our backlog now of, of ideas and things we could do. So it's now quite easy to to cut those down and, and uh, start
0: making them. Your platform is called MakerPad. What are the goals of MakerPad? We just want to teach people how to
1: build stuff without code. And hopefully at one point, we won't need to mention the no code thing or the without code thing. It'll just be this is how you build a marketplace app. And we sort of run you through that. Um, We've got a bunch of different things that we we do. Tutorials is definitely one of them. We've just announced our boot camp, which starts on February the 3rd which is our foundations of, of no-code. So we've got three categories there. I think it's the foundations, and then the other bootcamp is going to be the building a business, and then the next one is automating at work. So we think they're sort of our three main types of users. We've got a B2B offering where we help companies train their team on no-code tools, because I know a lot, of, a lot of sort of seed, series A startups are probably using Airtable, Zapier, and a bunch of other tools to run their workflows and run their businesses. So when they hire new people or they want to get better at Airtable or build new things and launch them and empower their non-technical team, we help them do that um, too. So there are a bunch of things, and we are just mostly focused on the education piece of teaching people how to do these things without needing to code.
0: Who are the kinds of people that a company would hire to do – low-code application building? Are they called operations people, internal tools people? I'm just trying to understand what this category of person who actually builds and works on low-code tools inside of an organization is.
1: I mean, we see people in all different areas. We've got customer support people who want to automatically assign tickets and and do things like that. There's definitely operational types, marketing people who want to test new landing pages and, and things like that. There's sales who want to build better lead generation tools, content where you can automatically publish content and things like that. Even we've done some, some automations around podcasting, and so you could pull in the person's latest social feeds and sort of pre-schedule their, their stuff and automatically transcribe it and things like that. So there's tons of areas where we know that we can help. So we are trying to sort of do a few tutorials in each of these buckets to show off those, those areas to those people.
0: Do you see MakerPad as a GitHub for low-code applications? Do you want it to be a place where people can download or fork or take inspiration from previous low-code fully-fledged businesses or applications?
1: I think, I mean, I do describe it as a GitHub for no code and I know that, Probably your audience may not like that as much, but I think that's how we see it in terms of the platform where you go, you learn about stuff. While If you want to get into this no-co space, I think it's just a matter of time until there is sort of a real way to fork someone's project. There's lots of templates and stuff at the moment, and we're working with some of these companies on some of their early programs too be part of that so that we could have have those things but yeah i think it's a matter of time until until that happens or there's even a component library on makeapad that you can say okay i want to have i want to use webflow and and airtable and i want to be able to do logins and memberships and then it'll show you okay download this piece download this piece and put them together like this
0: you're a part of earnest capital which is a funding platform for revenue generating businesses Is there a connection between these higher-level, low-code tools and the ability for a software business to generate profits more quickly than in the past?
1: Well, I obviously think that's true. And MakerPad was a side project for nine months. And I was actually working at Earnest at the time until I decided to go full-time and Earnest funded me as well as a few others. But I think... Yeah, it's, it goes back to that that point of you can launch it in a day, in a weekend, and get, val- and get customers straight out of the box rather than spending that time sort of building frameworks and, and everything else around what might take you a longer time. So I think it helps get to the validation of making the money and then you can go anywhere from there.
0: In the model for earnest capital, if I understand correctly, you fund businesses that have some profits and you are in return you get some share of the profits that the business would generate in the future
1: yeah it's a it's called, they call it a share doing agreement and they invest and it's like a term of okay if we gave you 100k you'd give us back 300k for example based over a certain time period and our percentage of your profit shares basically after 12 months minus your salary. So it's very founder-friendly and uh, it was definitely one of the reasons I wanted them to sort of invest in me. It was a great opportunity for us and it's working out really well for us at the moment. But yeah, they they tend to look at monthly recurring revenue businesses and, uh, and invest in those.
0: As we begin to close off, I want to just get some perspective for your beliefs about the future. So we have kind of a classic team structure in how people commonly think about building software teams, software businesses, the idea that you have an engineer and a non-engineer as the founders of a business. But it seems like that has potentially changed with the idea that you can just validate a business with low-code tools. Do you have any strong beliefs about the classical team structure and what you should look for in, if you're trying to, to start a company these days, what kind of cross-training you need. If you don't necessarily need to have software engineering skills on your team, what team structure should you look for?
1: Well, I think you need the ability to storytell regardless of, sort of where you are in that team. I think if with no code, you could easily go and be a solo founder. Not that I recommend other people do that too, but that's sort of what I am. But I was lucky in that I was telling the no code story before no code was getting a bit more popular. I think we'll see more and more people launching one-man businesses really quickly, and not to say that they'll be any more successful, but it's just a case of you be able to build these smaller businesses and and get them out there. I do think that eventually we will see job descriptions that say, oh, we rely on Airtable, Zapier, and and Webflow. So we want our marketing growth team to be able to use these and push them out. We don't want, we have this software platform, but we want our non-technical employees to also be able to ship stuff too and not have the backlog as their excuse for why they haven't done it and try and rely on these Expensive engineering resources, which I think is the case. I think that should be, that should be right. There should be ways to ship if you're not just, if you're not an engineer. Yeah, so I I do wonder how that will change, but I do think that these sorts of skills will become more commonplace. And I do think there's going to be, like no code doesn't mean no more coders. It means probably a lot more coders because there's going to be so many more things that people want to build. I think if there's some level of taking away the, the boring stuff with no code that opens up more creative stuff for people to create. So yeah, I do wonder, I think, I think we all can live harmoniously. So hopefully that's the case, but yeah, I think it should be supportive of both. And I do think actually that no code, low code is one of the best ways to actually learn or start learning or start realizing that you want to learn how to code.
0: Are there some gaps in the tooling when you look out over the, entire set of low code tools that you see are there any places where the low code ecosystem feels insufficient
1: i think like login sign up functionality is difficult because when when you have to write something down that means when this person is logged in they can now see this button and not this button and they can access this page and not this page Mm. and these things so when they're sort of crossed over in one place they become a bit muddy i think there's there's one company recently standard library who we we work with and they were more technical and they're now becoming more of a crossover platform so you can build like a slack bot or you can build some some tools with without code but it will actually show you the output code so that actually It helps you learn to do those things and makes you understand when I've done that API call to Stripe, that's actually what I'm seeing in what code looks like versus what I would see if I was just using sort of a UI click, drag and drop, drop down type tool.
0: Are there any other classical beliefs or dogmas about company building or software building that you think we should call into question today?
1: I don't know. I think there's a big sort of debate on whether giving people the power to build their own businesses or build their own things. Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And ultimately, I think it's a good thing, creativity and everything else. But I mean, you're always going to see some questionable products out there launching every day and and doing small little things. But I think it's better for, for the whole ecosystem. And I think that using no code is now given the people who could never build anything the option to do that. So many more ideas, many different ideas could be put out there. So we'll, we'll be interested to see how that develops.
0: Ben, thanks for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having
1: me. I really enjoyed it.